Well, tonight we do indeed begin a new series, and in Paul's mighty letter to the Ephesians, the first sermon is entitled Eyes Wide Open, and we're just going to try in the time we have to look at the first three verses of Ephesians chapter one. And so it is something of an introduction in, in many regards. And this letter is is notable for the fact that it has few, as it were, particular references to the church there or particular people in the church in Ephesus. The, the doctrine is stated in more general ways. It's not there to make a particular point about particular errors or particular difficulties within the church. And the statements and the applications are more general ones, such as any church, every church would benefit from, rather than being, as it were, some letters like Galatians or First, Second Corinthians, very much tailored to particular problems and troubles within the church. This one's more general, and its statements are more general, and the application that you come to when we come to that part of the letter is more general. And so it's thought that actually this letter was certainly for Ephesus, but also for beyond Ephesus, that this was not something that wouldn't make sense in Laodicea or some other neighboring town, but would make perfect sense to them as well. And thus we can perhaps see it as a letter that was given, yes, to the church at Ephesus, but not only to the church at Ephesus, but for other churches as well that the apostle had in mind when this was given to him by God to write. Now, Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, already had benefited from his visits. He had been there twice, once a brief visit towards the end of Acts chapter 18, when he's hurrying to get back to Jerusalem, and he is unable to stay long with them. But he says that if it is the will of God, I will return. And indeed, he does return. It is the will of God. And in Acts 19, as he embarks on, well, what we perhaps call his third missionary journey, as he travels out again, he strengthens the churches in Galatia, Phrygia, and then comes to Ephesus and stays there over two years. So he has a long sojourn there. It was the will of God for him to return and for him to stay a long time. And so he's there ministering in this quite strategic city and has then Afterwards, when he is now in prison, which is where he writes this from, uh, a people there that he's able to write to a church that he's been very much part of and has lived among those people for many years. People therefore wonder, well, why doesn't he have a more personal touch with those people in that church? But it perhaps is that always this letter was intended, not just for Ephesus, but other towns, other cities. And, uh, who would be a little bit stumped to know who, who that particular person is or uh, be a bit lost on them, some of the local detail. So there is what he has written. And he's written very much in the vein of what he gave in Acts 20, where he didn't actually visit Ephesus. He's now coming back from his third journey, having been to Ephesus. He then went into Macedonia, and then he returned from there and stops at Miletus, not far from Ephesus, calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus to join him. And then we have, um, well, this uh, great uh, 
weight of, of doctrine and teaching in Acts chapter 20 that he delivered to the Ephesian elders from verse 17 in Acts 20 and onwards. And the instructions he gives to them and the, the warnings he gives to them and the reminders he gives to them, the two years and more that he spent among them, he refers back to those things and reminds them of what he did when he was there, how he was among them. And that is the example he wants them then to take on in their duties as elders toward that church in Ephesus. And so as we see Acts 20 and verse 20, he says how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Held back nothing that was helpful to you and proclaimed it both in more public and in more private settings. Verse 27, and he says, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Well, he ministered in his two years in Ephesus. And in a way, what he is doing here is not shunning to show us the whole counsel of God, not missing an opportunity to teach us what is helpful. It's of a piece with his ministry over those two and more years in Ephesus, that which he reminded the Ephesian elders of in Acts 20, and which now he reminds them of again from within his prison cell. And you can see the references to that in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 20. He's able still to bring to them the whole counsel of God, including some very big themes, some very eye-opening themes, while staring at the prison wall, that while his own situation, one of some confinement, being chained, that actually what he is beholding is God's spirit working in him, giving him there that remarkable and unique gifting which comes from being an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And those walls and the chains can't confine his thought, that there isn't some limit that is placed upon him because of his trials and tribulations. Now he's still able to write very expansively about the greater and deeper purposes of God and not feel that, well, they've all come to nothing. Here I am in prison. He writes to the Philippians, doesn't he? Don't be discouraged because of my chains. And these are things there that could discourage others, but they don't discourage him. And he's seeing beyond his prison cell and penetrating there some of the, the depths of the mystery of God's will and purposes, and able to speak of those things very, very eloquently. What we've read there in Ephesians 1, verse 1 to 14, well, you take a deep breath before you read that through publicly, because it just flows and it flows, and barely anything resembling a full stop to be found anywhere in it. It's one sort of continuous flow of thought and of praise to God and considering different to truths there that uh, come very much to the fore. Well, we're not going to go verse by verse, as if every single verse we're going to have a, a week sermon on that. Uh, you, you would be well weary, I'm sure, by the end of that kind of process. And neither are we looking at this letter as though it's the only book that's in the Bible. There are lots of other books in the Bible and lots of other things that are said in those books 
in the Bible. But we have this book and we have this teaching. And so we give it our attention as we consider it now. And when Paul says grace to you and peace from God, that in a sense, this letter is what he is praying for the people to have grace and peace. This is a gift. This is God's spirit working. And here it is working in and through truth, as though God's Holy Spirit could work in any other way. Working in the truth, with the truth, through the truth, and bringing peace. That is the the intention, isn't it? So much of scripture, it's to give us assurance, peace of mind, not to trouble us. And therein lies perhaps a, a tragedy that what is supposed to be helpful turns out to be so controversial and so difficult and the implications of it. Well, we can't uh, sort of duck the issue there. The implications are pretty huge and some of them pretty difficult to, to wrestle with with our own finite minds. But in the end, Paul didn't anticipate anything other than this will be helpful. It's the whole counsel of God. And it will, is an aspect of God's grace. It's like a, a gift of his. It has power attached to it. It can change and transform perspective and actually make us more settled and more rested and more at peace in the will of God. And so much of this letter is about God and the church. There, there it is, God and his people and the relationship and how it works and how we end up in the church in the first place and having found our way into the church, into the body of Christ, what that then means, how we live, the kind of people that we are, what we contribute. And that, of course, all occurs more in the later chapters. But my first heading then is this. It's all about God. Well, you could say that of any book in the Bible, couldn't you just? Yes, you could. It's all about God. That is the center of everything. And that is easier said than it is believed. To assert that is one thing, to believe it is another, and to believe that it works in that way in our day-to-day life and our day-to-day experience. Because as I've said, some of the implications of saying it's all about God are, are difficult implications, and ones that make us blink, and ones that make us look and look carefully. What does this say? And we'll come to those things in due course. But in saying it's all about God, well, yes, and in that passage we've already read, you'll find Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is fully Trinitarian. We might have needed to wait for the, the New Testament and the fuller light of the New Testament to see there the, the kind of full doctrine of the Trinity, but it's where actually all through the Old Testament and all the predictions in the Old Testament and equally the references to the Holy Spirit, as well as the references to the person of Christ coming, all indicate their divinity. But now, of course, here is made very, very clear, very, very explicit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as this chapter from verse 3 begins with the Father and then moves on to the Son more from verse 7, oh, and then there is the Holy Spirit in verse 13 and 14. So it is highly, deeply Trinitarian. And in the whole flow as it proceeds, you you can see there that they're distinct persons, but there is all harmony. Everything there within the Godhead is 
is working to a great plan and in a very, very orderly fashion, but distinct fashion. That we cannot and should not confuse the Father with the Son, the Son with the Father, the Son with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit with the Son, the Father with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit with the Father. Saint persons, equally God, endowed with all what it means to be God, not diminished in any respect, not losing any aspect of that divinity, and yet within the Godhead, particular works associated with each person of the Godhead. So the Father is spoken of, the Spirit is spoken of. Oh yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken of. Well, I try to count number of mentions of Christ Jesus or Jesus, or Lord or Christ and Lord referring to him. Well, I got to 46 and I reckon if I looked harder, I'd have found a few more everywhere. And Paul is always, always, always attaching to any truth or exhortation or appeal the name of Christ, that everything, all that we are doing is in Christ, is exalted in Christ, is there given strength and help and shape by Christ. So while it's Trinitarian, when this is the very fact, isn't it there, that it is the full intention of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, that in these matters of our salvation, and then our Christian living, that we should realize that it has been the work, the place, the plan of the Trinity, that the Son should be the one who has redeemed his people from their sins, that he should be the one who came in frail flesh. He should be the one who had to live for 33 years among us, die at the end of it, be raised, and have then all the rewards of being our mediator heaped upon him, at his crowning in glory. So the son is mentioned a lot. Well, there's 46. Don't quote me on that. I think there are probably more if you look. But that's the number that I found when I had a look through this letter. Yes, it's all about God. And most especially matters of our salvation, the church of Jesus Christ. Well, we've said it there, haven't we? That we are to attach huge significance to him in all that we have. But it is our nature, actually, to put ourselves first. Well, there is the bias of sin within us, and it's always a battle within to give God his proper place and to find our place under him. More often than not, it's us (laughs) intruding into that place, God finding his place, subsumed under our interests. Well, everything that we are, all our doings, all our plans, all our desires, our pasts, our presents, our futures. Well, indeed, we are to give a lot of thought, actually, to ourselves. We are to think much about the people that we are. But we're to do it all in relationship to God, and in particular, our place in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not to say that we're just obliterated, that we become a sort of non-thing. In fact, this letter is saying far from it. This is a remarkable thing. And Christians are remarkable creatures. And the church is quite a remarkable institution. It needs to be taken more seriously, not less seriously. And in a sense, we, as we live before God, need to take our place more seriously, not less seriously. But we do it in the context that God 
is to be first. We don't have some death wish about ourselves that we want to completely neglect who we are. That, that's been a mistake, hasn't it, in the history of the church to so kind of pull down the flesh, so ill-treat the body that we, we go and deprive ourselves of any comfort. We deprive ourselves of any kind of, uh, of easing of life and go deliberately to make life as hard as possible and eat the most basic of things and live in the most basic of places or some lived on top of mountains, didn't they, or lived deliberately in caves and refused all that, uh, well, just necessary comforts of life. No, no, they didn't see the necessary and refused them. You don't find that actually in the Bible. You don't find that that's the kind of life that is endorsed there. And so it's not telling us, well, become invisible or so treat yourself that uh, you, you're just, uh, uh, just don't even think about yourself. I mean, some people think that that's quite spiritual, just, uh, oh, it's nothing about me and, uh, some sort of humility there, which one often suspects is a little bit phony. God isn't saying about that, but he is saying to us, and the letters, and the Bible, you might say, is having to always move us out of the way that we may behold God better, because the better we behold him, and the more we know him, the better we'll know ourselves, be able to understand the people that we are, and be able, as a result of that, to make progress. So we make the mistake of thinking it is about ourselves and thinking that we have to be the ones who are in charge of the process of understanding ourselves. That That's the mistake of trying to work out what you look like by looking in a cracked mirror. That uh, you'll, you'll come away with a rather strange idea of what you look like. One of these mirrors that kind of makes you either look taller or shorter or wider or thinner that you'll come away with a pretty unrealistic idea. And that's what sin does. It doesn't help us actually to behold ourselves. We behold ourselves and see our place always best in relation to God, this God, the God of the Bible, the God who Paul speaks of in the letter to the Ephesians. Our self-centeredness always means that we are thinking, what does it mean for me? Or how is this going to interfere with me? How How is this going to affect me? You hear of a distant war somewhere and you immediately think, well, how's that going to affect my heating bill? Or well, is that going to affect what I can buy in the supermarket next week? The answer is probably it will. But that we automatically, I fear, think that first of all, rather than, well, those poor people there uh, and work through the implications for them. It's perhaps an indication of how sort of inward looking we are, that inward bias, as it's called, of sin. And so... Uh, the antidote is to realize, recognize, agree that it is all about God. It is all about him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you like, we're recovering the first commandment here. That we're having no other God before him. It's no, nobody else that should be in that place that we hallow no other name but his name. And thus we are to proceed with this and indeed with anything that we do. And this, actually, we realize that we relate actually to him as he has determined and as he has revealed. So we will find our place better in his purposes and plans, discover more who we are and what we're meant to be. Well, my second heading, weighty blessings. And we're looking here, aren't we? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And if you wonder how 46 mentions can come up, well, just in that verse there, you, you got two, Lord Jesus Christ, how these blessings come to us in Christ. That Paul, by inspiration, is always bringing that name in and always showing us that what we have is related to him. And so the name appears again and again. And if we just look there, an interesting contrast that blessed be the God and Father, at least as rendered in English, and who has blessed us with spiritual blessings. Well, what's happening here? Do we confer some, some sort of advantage to God by blessing him when this, this, uh, uh, kind of exhortation of God the Father that Paul utters, blessed be him? Are we doing something that's adding something to him, to his, his being, to his nature? Well, not at all. We could never do that. He is self-sufficient. He's all in himself and everything is in his good pleasure that there is no lack or something missing that we have to somehow supply by, I don't know, coming to church and singing hymns or doing something there. No, no, if, if it never lived, well, God would still be God and still be self-sufficient. We do actually add to his honor when we turn from ourselves and exclaim how great thou art. We do actually bring something to his honor when in time and space we bring ourselves as these living sacrifices to praise him. That it isn't adding anything to his intrinsic nature, but it adds to his honor when people are converted and they turn to him. And now their voices and words are not blasphemous ones, but ones of praise. That there is another voice, another voice confessing his name, fresh lips, making name known his name on high. That is to bless him. That is when we ourselves recognize who he already is and then turn away from sinfulness, turn away from all our own desires and ambitions and recognize him. Because that also has a knock-on effect. Others see that we are praising him that we are bringing honor and a recognition of him. We're hallowing his name. And they see that he must be worth something if we do that. We come to church on Sunday and we're doing something else. He must be worth something for us to do that or to go out in the streets of Belper and stand there and meet with studied indifference from people. At least they might just work out, well, he must mean something to them that they're willing to do that. And so as we bless his name, as we add our voices, as we bring our gifts to him, as we use our lives for him, and so that stirs others perhaps to do likewise. And that brings yet blessing to his name. Blessed be. So by our actions, by the way we honor him, that in that way we bring blessing to his name. But more weighty are the blessings in that sense that he brings to us. And notice we bless God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Father, our prayers, our Father who is in heaven that we direct our prayers to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus and with the help from the power of the Holy Spirit. So to the Father we pray. And then there is the traffic 
from heaven, heavenly places. These blessings actually have come from heaven. Well, there's something, isn't it, saying that? That what has happened to us, what changes have happened, what realizations we have made, what revelations of who he is and the impression that leaves upon us, that that has all come from heaven. It didn't come from the preacher. It didn't come from the Sunday school teacher, wherever else there, in a sense. No, it came from God himself. It came from heaven. And that those things that changed us, those things that moved us and still move us, didn't originate within the flesh. Flesh prophets, nothing. But there, from God, from heaven, he is the author of these things. They come from his throne. And that's weighty. That's substantial. And that's not trivial. Oh, when people talk about blessings and receiving blessings, they sometimes have the oddest things in mind. Weird things and strange happenings and people falling on the floor and doing weird stuff when they get down there. And I think that that is it. Well, that is not it. That is to trivialize the work and grace of the Holy Spirit and the intention of God the Father and the, the mediation of God the Son. These aren't foolish things. These aren't things either that are meant to make us act like foolish people, bark like dogs or writhe around and lose control entirely of what it means to be human beings. We're not reduced to the animals. We're not out of control people. We're meant actually to have our faculties fully enriched, switched on. We see things as we've never seen them before when we're receiving these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. So they come from heaven. And well, amazing to think, isn't it? Feeble prayers of yours and mine, the lack of energy at times and lack even of basic faith at times when we pray. And yet our heavenly father hears us and sends then this traffic from heaven. And it's almost as if it is one way, hardly our prayers in the whole equation there seem pretty pitiful and pretty weak expressions of faith. And yet the Father is pleased to hear them and to respond far, far more he gives than we could ever have expected. And such feeble and such faithless prayers, but they receive heavenly blessings in Christ. What comes back to us is far more than we offered up to him. And we receive answers that really we are hardly worthy of. That's the generosity of God. And it's supernatural. That is is supernatural. This is grace. This is the working of God and even what we call common grace. What happens to unbelievers as well as to believers? Rain and sunshine and beautiful places and birdsong and sunsets that we all can appreciate. And yet to the believer, there is a degree of supernaturalization of common grace that we draw lessons from it that unbelievers don't. We see something in it. We see the handiwork of God, don't we? That unbelievers don't see. So in those things too, those really would count in the end as the blessings of spiritual blessings that God endows for us. Common grace, the weather, anything you might name, the food we eat with something more, that we discern something more, we derive something more from it. And our appreciation actually is is towards God in that. 
we see that there's more to this than simply our dinner. There's more to this than simply a, a nice view or nice places to go to and see. There, there's more to it. And within it, God wraps up lessons to us that can be sometimes very profound and deeply spiritual. And we are moved on, not so there in terms of a, you know, places we've seen or been or things we've done or dinners we've eaten, but actually spiritually we move on. There's a thankfulness perhaps that becomes more instinctive in us as a result of these things. And these blessings were planned a long, long time ago. Well, they might seem to us that they just come to us where we are, and very often is it not the case. They come to us where we'd say just when we needed it. When we look back, we say, well, we couldn't have. That couldn't have been planned better. We needed that then. We didn't know what was coming up, but there was something then in place, something God had shown us, given to us, and may have come by common grace, some money we received. Who knows what, but it was just what we needed. And we didn't know at the time we were going to need it, but later on we found we did. And indeed, all of this, and nothing too small in that way, we may find others guilty of trivializing their word blessing by counting weird things as being his. But what he does, the small things that count, knowing the number of hairs upon our heads, the details. Oh, it's the details, isn't it? Where those blessings come to us and have deep, deep meaning. And they were planned in eternity. How about that? They were planned in eternity. Eyes wide open. Well, here we are, eyes wide open. Well, we thought, well, God must have just thought, oh, better do that now. Uh, better respond to that now. There, there's a change of plan. Let's, let's move with this. He foresaw it all, actually, uh, and was already ahead of us and beyond us before we ever got there. Well, it's beyond us before we were ever born, in fact. And there we have this eternal dimension. So it's not haphazard. It's not sort of on the on the wing, on you're just off the cuff, we might say. And pardon my poor Dutch visitors struggling with these idioms, but just made up on the spur of the moment. It, it's it's planned, and it's planned for you. It's planned for me. It's planned for churches, planned for nations, small scale, large scale. So these spiritual blessings and the heavenly places in Christ descend upon us. Every spiritual blessing, every kind. Everything suited to us. Blessings that work in the inner man. We'll come to that in due course there. In chapter three, I think, isn't it there? The strength in the inner man, the, the inner woman, the inner person that we are in Christ. And that's saying something too, because we are very complex creatures. It's sin. I'm afraid it's made us as such, but we, we are very complex creatures with many layers to who who we are and we're scarcely aware of what layers there are and who we are and what things we are and what we are capable of and that can often be pretty negative what we're saying there not always sure about why we're feeling what we're feeling why we're in some disagreeable mood what's done this for us what's changed what's happened and we often have to stop and have a long think about it before we work out that. Even then, we may not think we've really come to the answer of it. And there are those depths to us, and there are those counsels of the heart that we have, and sometimes we're barely aware that we have, but they're actually doing a lot in us, not necessarily good things at that. But God knows that. God can cut through the complexity, and he can begin to work in those hidden secret places and begin to make us to ourselves a more comprehensible 
and an open book that we then respond to him better. And we understand with greater clarity who we are as Christians, what we're meant to be, how we're meant to do our duties, how we're meant to live our lives. God understands and deals with us. He is wise indeed. And all of this is, is done in such a way. And we read later on that in verse eight, that the things he made are bound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He makes us wiser people and he makes us more judicious and prudent people. There's not a hazardness, a carelessness. There's not sort of like a surgeon blundering around, doesn't really know what he's doing and takes the wrong thing out or puts the wrong thing in. He knows exactly what he's doing. And those spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing, the, this sort of manifold nature of it, this diversity here, I'm using diversity in a very happy way, this diversity suited to us in our different places and different hidden things and complexities that sadly our sinful nature has brought upon us. And he can work in there, bringing deliverances, lessons, rebukes, awakenings, encouragements, helps, mercies, discoveries, new thinking, different thinking. And all of this can have an impact on our health, better health, make us happier people too, in, a, in the best sense of that word. The more at peace, grace and peace to you from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are not empty words. Those words have meaning. And here are these spiritual blessings bringing that meaning into our actual experience and bringing deeper and deeper peace into our hearts. And finally, as he says, in Christ, and I'm not going to say much on this. It's a key theme, actually, and it's going to occur many, many more times in this letter. But everything, all, all of that, and all of the range of possibilities that come to us now in relationship to God, are because of him. They are in him. They come because of a connection that we have with him, or better put, he has with us. And that connection didn't come about by some plan of ours, some uh, kind of understanding that we came to. It was already established that we were seen in him, why, before the foundation of the world. And so everything that he, when he came into this world, came in humility, came as a servant, lived among us, did the incredible things he did, lived with such opposition, such weight of temptation, such obstacles, such hardships, went to the cross, died upon it, died unimaginably difficult painful way all of the injury that it did not only physically but to the purity of his his soul and rose again went into glory all of that has a linkage to us that we were in that we were already in him that when he lived that we were in him living that and whatever he achieved in that we received that and when he went to the cross well we received all of the benefit of that. When he rose from the dead, we received all the benefit of that. And when he ascended, now there he is in the heavenly places. Well, you'll read later on there, won't we, that uh, we, we're together with him in the heavenly places. We're sat together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, chapter 2, verse 6. 
in him. That there's a linkage. We're already locked into him. That was established in eternity. So what he did, what he was doing, what he was saying, how he was living, how he was dying, how he was rising, was with us in him. We were already receiving there in the mind of God, wherever born, what the son was doing, what he was accomplishing, what he was achieving, the rewards that were going to be his. Well, they will also be for his people too, who are in him. Well, enough said on that. We can see there that from him, these spiritual blessings give us power over temptation, joy and peace, truth to rejoice in, knowledge, wisdom, and the list could go on and on and on. And whatever we've found so far, well, there's more to come. Whatever discoveries we've made, whatever joys we've, we've had through him, there's more to come. And it'll never end. And if we're rightly living before him, praying to him, trusting him, then it'll never end until we go from this place into glory. It'll continue. Heaven's store is not exhausted, that God hasn't run out of ideas how to deal with us. He may at times use hammer blows. He may at times use rebukes to bring those spiritual blessings to us. But bring them, he will, and he'll continue to. And, well, you've read for yourself there just how often the word grace is used. That favor, that generosity, that gift, that giving that never, ever is exhausted. Eyes wide open. I don't think they can be open wide enough, can they, really? We can't be sufficiently giving our attention to this. We can't be sufficiently alert and awakened to the implications of of this. So we try to open our eyes a little bit wider, perhaps, and grasp a little bit more. And as we proceed through this letter, to see well, what weighty things he has to say to us. Well, may we have hearts and minds open to what he has to say. God may continue to open our eyes a bit wider and wider to behold his glory all the more. Well, we wait that another day. Let's turn to our concluding hymn. We very much, if you're here this morning, know that we had the Queen's funeral service in mind. We sung two of the hymns that were sung at the Westminster Abbey um, funeral service this morning. We're singing one more of those hymns, number 887, that was sung at that funeral. The day thou gavest, Lord, is ended, 887. 